Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for all that you're doing. We ask you to be with Loretta and help the doctors find out what's going wrong and that they may be able to get her treated. And we just ask that you bless this time as we look at your word. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I pray for uh, Christina Shycock this morning. Last night, she broke her arm, so she really can't drive. Okay. She goes quickly. All right. We're going to be looking about looking at today everlasting life, or life eternal, if you prefer, whichever way. And this is something that is controversial among a lot of Christians. There's a lot of people who somehow think you can lose your salvation, you can lose your eternal life. Um, the very fact that Jesus says that we have eternal life definitely helps me to understand that it is eternal. It's not something he's going to take away from us or cast us away. So I don't know how people have a problem with it. Uh, most, of, most of those who have a problem with it somehow believe that somehow you can do things to earn, earn eternal life or do things to not earn eternal life. And the problem is they don't understand that it's all by grace. And hopefully we are beginning to understand that as we're closing to the end of the 51 things that can yeah, happen to you at the moment of salvation. And it really goes to show us that we are eternally secure because it's all a work of God. So we're going to look at that and we're going to start in John chapter 11. And uh, reading verses 25 and 26. This is in the, the death of Lazarus and just before Jesus goes and you know brings him back to life. And in verse 25 of John 11, it says, Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were, were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Believe you this. Okay, and this is Jesus talking to Martha. And Martha had just chided him, saying that if you'd come here sooner, he wouldn't have died. Jesus answered back to her, well, I am the resurrection. And she goes, well, I know he will resurrect in the, in the in day, in days. And then Jesus goes into this statement. Uh, so he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And this is this uh, area right here, the word I am. Jesus uses that a lot in the, in the Pharisees and the scribes understood when he kept saying, I am, <laughs> that he was referring to the fact that he was God. And so we look at this, and he says, I am the resurrection and life. And life here is the word in Greek, zoe. Uh, and you may, may have heard, you know, a lot of people like that word nowadays as a name, zoe. Okay? And zoe means life, but it means eternal life. It means spiritual life. Uh, it, it, as far as the Koine Greek goes, uh, we use zoe for uh, animal life and, and real life as opposed to any, any form of biological life or, or plant and plant life. Uh, but in, in the biblical term, Zoe literally is referring to everlasting life. Every time Jesus talks about everlasting life, eternal life, he uses Zoe. And as opposed to a bios life, which is just life in general. And both those words are used in the scripture. So sometimes it'll be life, it'll be bios, sometimes it'll be Zoe. But if it has eternal or everlasting life, it is going to always be Zoe. Uh, the only other way to do it is to go back into the original language and look and see what, which life he's talking about. But usually in context you can tell. 
If he's talking about a spiritual life, he's talking about Zoe life. If he's talking about the life in the flesh or just our general life, it'll be bios life. And so he says here, I am the resurrection and the life, Zoe. He that believes in me, though he be dead, yet shall he live. And this believe is, to, is basically the word for faith. It is to be persuaded of the truth of something. Okay, so if you're persuaded of the truth in him, who he is, that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, though you were dead, and this talks about eternal death, not just, not just being physically dead. So he's talking about people walking around that are facing death without his resurrection. Okay, and all of us have been there at some point in our life where we were walking dead, you know, we were, we were at bios life, but we were dead spiritually. And he says, though you were dead, <clears throat> yet you shall be alive. And again, this is Zoe. So he says, if you believe in me, you were dead, but now <laughs> you are alive. So very important as we look at that, and he's recognizing you were dead, now you're alive. And there's millions and billions of people on this planet that are walking dead as far as spiritual life goes. They, they're animated, they're alive, but they are dead spiritually. And Jesus said, And whosoever liveth and believes in me shall never die. Believe you this. And this is where Jesus is making his comment. If you believe in him, you are alive. And we will never die. Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So for a Christian... Death is something we don't even experience. We just leave our body, our physical body behind, and we walk right out of this, this three-dimensional world into whatever spiritual world God lives in and stand before him. And then we kind of look back, and you know, if you've ever watched the ghost movies where sometimes where somebody realizes they're dead and they've looked back at their body and they're no longer there, well, that is almost a picture of what we have, except that we'll be in God's presence. And we'll look around and realize... We don't have a physical body anymore. We're in the spirit world. And this for us should be a great hope. When we face death, we're not really facing anything. When a Christian dies, there should be, you know, I know there's going to be the, the sorrow that you've lost somebody important in your life and all of that. But yet there is a joy in it that this person has gone into God's presence. We're not like the world who sits there and says, okay, I have no hope. They're never going to see them again. We go, I'm going to see them again. I will see them again. And however many years I've got to live, I will see them again. And that is the great hope for us as a Christian. When we die, we're going to see all those other family members and friends who are Christian. Now, if they're unsaved, we have no hope. Because that's, you know... But we don't also really know whether somebody's saved or not saved unless you know, unless you spend a lot of time with them and you see that life. Jesus is the only one that knows that Jesus and God knows if they're actually truly saved in their heart. Mm -hmm. You know, because recently my uncle passed away and you now like I feel emotional inside that he did leave, but at the same time I'm really you know, I'm so happy that he went to Jesus. You know, and it's up to Jesus if, you know, if I'm the same part of heaven with my uncle or not, because God knows if we can bear that or not. And, I think it's good, so I understand. Yeah, and I hadn't had a chance to talk to him, but he did raise his hand to, to accept the Lord the last time he was in the church, so I don't, 
I have to trust that that is a true thing and that it was valid. I wish that I had been able to sit down with him and find out, you know, exactly what it was. But I have to say, because the message that day was clearly given, and he would have known what he was doing, so it may very much have been a true, true conversion. And uh, and that's what we'll put our hope in. And and there's people that you know are saved. You just you spend time with them, and their love for God just shines out for them. And there's no doubt that they're they're saved and that they're going to be in heaven. And there's all those people who claim to be Christians that you look at their life and say, well, I'm not your judge, but I would never, I would never say that. But, you know, and, but that's not our job to judge. It's God's job, job, job to judge them. And, but it is something we want to be able, you know, we would like it to be that our life so much shows God that when people look at us and say, I know that person is with God. I know that person loves God. Look at the love that's pouring out of them and the, their desire to serve God. And that's very important for us, and that's important for us to learn to give our life over to God enough that He shines forth. And I've met lots of people that I'm just absolutely sure the moment I meet them that they're they're saved, they're a Christian, because God is just so much coming out of them that it couldn't be false. And I've met people who say they're Christians, and I'm looking at them, I'm going, you know, you're a nice enough person, but I just don't feel God's love or feel God in this in, in in you now could I be wrong absolutely uh, but am I gonna say they're not saved no am I gonna pray for them as if they're not saved probably because I want them to grow and show the love of God and because I've seen even new Christians show God's love I mean they may show be very exuberant and so it's critical for us to be able to say do you know God And it really comes down to this do I know Am I absolutely persuaded that he is the Son of God, that he died for my sins, that he resurrected, and, and then he, also that I have sinned and that I deserve punishment? Because I meet a lot of people who don't understand that they are a sinner deserving punishment. And we probably all met numbers of those, you know, well, I'm better than most, or I'm not that bad. I try not to consider myself anything like that. And it's important not to. And the closer you get to God, the more you realize how sinful you even are. They call it the Church of the Self-Righteous. <laughs> yeah. They think they're better than everybody else. But the closer you get to God, even, even if you're a person who hasn't had a lot of sin in your life, you start realizing how sinful you are because all of a sudden you start measuring yourself not against other people, but you start measuring yourself against God's expectation. And it's like, wow. You know, none of us meet God's expectation, no matter how good or bad we are. We don't meet God's expectation, and we look at our life and say, "Wow, I'm not, I'm not anything." Look how, look how often I say negative things about people, or think negative things about people if I don't say them, or place judgments on them, or whatever it might be. We're all because we're fleshly beings inclined to do that kind of stuff. And it doesn't even take being into drugs and alcohol and thievery and, and sexual misconduct. It comes down to just not living the way that God has example is. And we get to that point, and even when God's worked out all the big sins in our life, we still realize, man, I've got so many problems in my life. I've got so many problems in my life. I think negatively about people. I want to, you know... Even if I don't say them, I still, in my mind, have to deal with some of those things. And you still come out and say some things when you shouldn't say things and, and act that way. And God just shows you, this is who you are. You're going to, you need to grow. 
And the thing about it is we'll need to grow all the way until we die. We'll always be needing to grow and, and improve. And it's all by letting God do it. And so very important for us on that. John 20. Verse 31, John 20, verse 31. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. And again, this life is Zoe life, eternal life. So John's getting close to the end of his little book here, and he's saying, I wrote all these things, and the reason is I want you to believe. Be persuaded, absolutely sure that Jesus is the Christ. Now, we've said it before, but it bears saying again, you know, Jesus' name is not Jesus Christ, okay? It's not even Jesus. Jesus is a Greek form of his name, and his name was Yeshua or Joshua, we would say in English. So his name was Yeshua, God, God saves. And then Christ is the anointed one, the Messiah. So when, they, when you see Jesus Christ or Jesus the Christ, which is actually the better way to put it, it's Jesus the Messiah, the anointed one. Okay, With all that Messiah means to, to us when we get into the Old Testament and, and look at who he was, he was going to be the rescuer of the Jews, the rescuer of the people, the anointed one, the Son of God, uh, the, the one who was going to deliver them. The reason the Jews didn't see him as the Messiah is because they were looking for deliverance from Rome. They weren't looking at deliverance from sin first and then deliverance as a nation later on. And so they totally have missed that he's their Messiah. All right, They are going to see him as Messiah during the end of the tribulation period when he comes back and, and saves them. And because they're going to go through the tribulation period where God gets their attention and says, hey, I'm your... I'm your God, you need to follow me. And then Jesus returns at the end of the seven years and, reign, and sets up his reign. And then he will rule in their idea of Messiah. But he is the Christ, the Messiah. So when you see Christ, just know that's an, basically a Greek way of saying Messiah. It's not fully equivalent, but it is basically what they're saying. The Son of God, and again, the idea of God having a son. That's still a problem to this day for people. It was really a problem for the Jews and still a problem with a lot of people in this day that, that God would have a son and that this son would be God. Okay? And we've got various groups and cults that deny that Jesus was the son of God. They'll say he never said he was the son of God. And there were multiple places where he said, didn't come out and say, I am God's son, but the words that he said, the Jews picked up rocks to stone him because they knew that he was claiming to be God. And we'll look at one of those here in a little bit. Uh, matter of fact, this one right here uh, is one of those places where they knew that he said that. And Jesus is the Son of God. Then we've got the Holy Spirit, which is God, and we have the Trinity. All three different aspects of God, three different individuals of God, all God, because the Bible gives them the qualities of God, and yet they're one. And we cannot comprehend that. And I've said over and over again, I can, I can teach you every verse on the Trinity there is. I can show you every verse and absolutely convince you that, there, that the Trinity does exist, but still not be able to understand it any better than when you start 
start out to begin with because we can't comprehend the whole idea of one God, three individuals that are all distinct from each other, that are all God, and yet there's only one God. It, the, the idea makes no sense. It's impossible for our little, little brains to con conceive of or contemplate or understand. There's all kinds of examples. Their scholars have been debating this and talking about this for 2,000 years. And they've given great arguments and great, great dissertations on it, but they don't understand it any better than anybody else. All we know is that the Bible teaches it. And how it teaches it is strong. And can we fully understand it? Absolutely not. But Jesus is the Son of God, and it says, and that by believing ye might have life through his name eternal life eternal life and this is important for us if you're living in a belief that you can lose your salvation you've got a problem because you're living under fear every time you turn around because what sin is it that's going to drive you over the edge and take your take your eternal life from you you know we don't know you know you'll never know if you're living in that kind of a fear of i can lose my salvation it's a fearful way to live, a, a devastating way to live, and you can never have joy in your salvation because you're always going to be fearful that it's going to disappear. And I've talked with people who say they can lose their salvation. I'm going, well, what's it take to lose your salvation? And they don't really understand it either. It's just somebody has pounded in their head that you can lose your salvation, but nobody's ever defined what exactly you have to do. And then I'm going, okay, well, that's sad. So you, 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 commit, your, you commit the big sin, whatever that might be, and you die three seconds later, so you've lost your, you're going to live in hell for the rest of your life because you made one, you made a bad decision three seconds before you died. That is a very sad way to do it. And it really is saying that Jesus' sacrifice was not sufficient. And Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient. And it covers all sin. And it covers all sin. You know, there was no sin that God didn't know that you were going to commit when Jesus died. All of your sin was in the future, so when he died, all of your sin was covered. Even sins we haven't committed yet are already covered. Now, does that mean that we're just going to go out and sin for the sake of sinning? No. We've got Jesus in our heart, God's living in us, and there should be conviction, and we should live a life that is more and more honoring to him as we go on. I got a dust devil? I heard it. But the whole idea is God is working in us. He's going to give us a life, and His life, this eternal life, will start working out of us. And God is, is out there saying, This is your gift. It's a gift. Eternal life is a gift. Jesus paid for it, gives it to us, and for me to have the audacity to think somehow I can earn it or deserve it or, or keep it on my own is ridiculous because it is him that did the work. And so this is why and we've, I'm really hitting hard on this. I know this group believes in this, but we need to make sure we understand so that when people come and challenge us, we understand that, no, it's, it's eternal life. It's not. It's not life until I do something wrong. It's not life until, until I... You know, I lose, interest. I lose interest or I walk away 
You know, it, it is life. As long as it is really life, and we've talked about this, you know, I truly believe in it. Once I know that I know that I know that I'm saved, I don't have to worry about it. Even if I go off in the deep end and do some really dumb things for a period of time, God is standing there saying, come back. <laughs> you know, come back. You're, you're not doing what I want you to do. But he's not saying you no longer have eternal life. Now, if we can go out and sin without any kind of conviction or, you know, or, or calling or feel that we're doing something wrong, then we might have a problem saying, not have I lost my salvation, but was I ever truly saved? In, yeah, in the first place. So it's never that we could lose our salvation, but we could not truly believe. We could be saying, and this is the scary thing about, you know, and I've heard lots of pastors, you know, do it on services and on the radio. We want everybody to say this, this prayer of salvation with me. I hate that idea because if you don't mean words, they're not magic words that all of a sudden make you, you know, make you a Christian whether you wanted to believe or not. So that it makes me scared when they do this kind of thing that somebody might actually think they're saved just because they said these words and you know like abracadabra the rabbits out of the hat you know it's it's not that kind of thing you know they're all the right words but if you don't mean the words it doesn't mean anything and uh, and I've met many people who've said well I said a prayer when I was seven and did you mean them well I said the prayer I go no but did you mean did you really understand that you were a sinner did you really understand that Jesus paid the Paid the price, and that he and that he lives in you. Probably not at six. Probably some do. Some do. I've met people who've gotten saved at four, five, and six years old that really knew what they were doing. Did they know every bit of all the doctrine? Obviously not. When I was ten years old, I didn't know every bit of every doctrine involved in being saved, but I knew that I was a sinner that deserved hell, and I believed in Jesus, and I know that I was saved at ten years old. And I've met people who've gotten saved at four, you know, three and four years old who know what they did. Now, most of those had to come from a Christian home so that they were taught correctly from the beginning. You're, you know, somebody three, four years old who's, who's heard the scripture for the very first time, probably not saved. Somebody growing up in a Christian home who's gone to Sunday school and church and is being taught at home, they probably might understand at three and four years old. And I've met people in that that really did. Uh, that's pretty young. I, I question anybody getting saved at that age, but I know that it happens. Uh, but the key is they were growing. Everybody I know that had that grew up in that situation. It wasn't the first time they were exposed to the gospel message. And then I know people who don't understand even at 20 and 30 years old. They they just can't seem to understand. So. And just uh, and I went soul winning one time with this person, and and uh, she had this poor teenage boy backed up against a wall. You know, gotta say this prayer, gotta say this prayer. Well, he said the prayer, and she let him go. And I turned to him, I go, you know that boy's not saved. He goes, well, God will hold him accountable. He said the prayer. I'm going, no, he said words to get you off his back. You know, and the sad thing is, he might have walked away thinking that he was a Christian now. Yeah, and that's the sadder part. She set him up to possibly never get saved because she forced these words out of his mouth and he might someday be listening to somebody who's witnessing to him and say, well, I said those words. You know, and he may now go to hell because of being forced into trying to say some words that meant nothing. And that's why it's very 
we've got to be careful when we're sharing with people. They've got to be ready to say this prayer, which is one of the reasons I, I have problems with pastors that have whole churches repeat these words. Because if it's not meant, all you've done is given maybe false hope to somebody. And very, very critical. You know, yes, they're the right words. I'm a sinner. I deserve hell. And thank you that Jesus paid my debt and come into my heart. You know, the right words, but if they're not meant, they're not real. And I can't tell you how many people I've met in their 60s and 70s that come forward in the church and say, I've never known God. I've been in church all my life, but I've never known him. You know, and that's a scary thought. You know, that somebody can stay in a church and, and not know Jesus. 1 John 5. Four books before Revelation. 1 John 5. Verse 11. And this is the record that God hath given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He that has the Son has life, he that has not the Son of God has not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that ye may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. This is John again talking about how to know that we're saved. And he says, and this is the record that God has given us eternal life. God gives eternal life. And again, this is Zoe life with eternal in front of it, so it's, it's double, double emphasizing that it's eternal. Uh, he says that God gives eternal life. And that right there should be enough for us to know that once we God has given us eternal life, just by definition that it's eternal, it's not going to be taken away. And then he goes, and this life is in the Son. We have it because of Jesus. He gives us eternal life, and it's because of Jesus, and we have Jesus in, in us. Or we are in him, however, whichever way you want to look at it, and that's what we talked about last week, being in Christ. And this is important, that life. And it says, he that hath the Son hath life. So if we have Jesus, which is what the prayer is all about, the sinner's prayer is all about, we have that life. And Jesus says that he, we are in his hand, and then he is in the Father's hand. So between the two of them, we have no way to get out. Neither one of them are going to lose anybody. So we're doubly sure of our salvation because of where we're at. And I've heard people say, well, if I got into his hand, I can get out of his hand. And that's, you know, number one, you're not going to want to. And number two, you're not going to. You're not going to get out of his hand. You're, you're there. Allstate, good hands. <laughs> good hands, yeah. It's even better than Allstate. You know, <laughs> he, he's got you and he is not going to let you go. And that's why it can be eternal life. And it says, he that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. And this is critical. You know, this is how we kind of know when people, people are in Christ. When they are in Christ, we see it, we feel it, we know it. There is no... If you're there or not, you when you are in Christ, you know you're there. You know it because of the power that's involved, the peace that's involved, the joy that's involved. It doesn't mean that we're happy all the time. It just means that we're at peace. 
and peace is, peace is that overarching thing that we have, you know, happiness is usually associated with what goes on around us, you know, I'm happy, I got, I got a bonus this week, or I got this check, or these good things happened to me, so I'm happy. But it is possible to have peace and joy even when everything's going wrong. And uh, if anybody's happy because things are going wrong, I, I think they're mentally deficient. But just to have that peace and joy when things are going wrong, you can say, okay, they're trusting in God. Because I, I don't think anybody's going to be happy when things go wrong. If they are, they've got some issues that they have to deal with. But to just be peaceful. When, when all things are going wrong, all hell is breaking loose in your life, and you can just say, God's still in control, you can be at peace. Because God's there. I had a thought past few days, it's strange as the past years, is if you have pain or things go wrong, that really proves that you're alive. Mm -hmm. If everything's all good all the time, geez, I'm in heaven. You know, everything's good. Like five three. But you says. you smash your finger or you get you know, hurt, you know, you're uh, or you uh, have some rough times or terrible people, friends dying or whatever. And I think that proves to us that we're alive. Well, yeah, it's kind of like the negative of the positive. It's uh, you know. It it it. Pain is part of living. Pain is part of going through things. Uh, testing is part of God proving who we, you know that we are to trust Him. Um, so that's what three kind of means. That says, "For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome." Mm -hmm. So the more that He comes out through us, the more exactly. And we've talked a lot about this. Is you know. The more God lives in us, the more we're going to live out his commandments, not because we're trying or, or that they're grievous or burdensome, but because he is in us and living. And they're not grievous, and that's exactly what that's saying, is that he lives out of us. And it is his love, the love of God that we keep his commandments, because he lives in us. And when he's living in us, we're going to see our life changed. You know, just like we talked about Sunday when we were talking about he wants to change us, you know, wants to, you know, be like the pickle where we are changed from the fleshly being into a spiritual being. And we will always have uh, some part of us that is the fleshly until we're, until we're glorified. And we've said this over and over, the very first thing that will pop out of our mind and out of our throats and when something goes wrong is usually the flesh. You know, or it will be at least the first thought on our mind. And the question is, how spiritual are we? How quickly does the Spirit's thoughts follow upon the flesh's thoughts? When we're really close to God and we're walking with God and we're in His Word, His thought might be so fast that it almost beats the flesh's thought to our, to our brain and, and we, get, we, we, we react with that spiritual thought. The further we're away from God, the more quickly the flesh's thought will hit and sometime a little later, the, the, the spirit thought will hit, if at all, depending on how far away we are. But we can almost guarantee our very first thought is going to be from the flesh, because we are flesh. When we're in an accident, our first thought is not going to be, praise God, I've been in an accident. It's going to be, how dare this person pull out in front of me, or the brakes go out, or the steering go out, or... I don't want to be sued. But... But the closer we are to, to with the Spirit, our first thought is, will be, is everybody okay? 
you know, not just me, but the other car, whether they're at fault or I'm at fault, but is everybody okay? Our spirit is looking to, to be the first thought. It's so important that we spend time meditating on God's word. We spend time in prayer. We spend time on spiritual thoughts so that the spirit is right there. Out of the abundance of our heart, the mouth speaks. And we can tell, you can tell where people are at at any time by what they say. What's the first thing out of their mouth? Well, they're, they're either really good with the flesh or they're really good with God at the time. And, and again, we always have to be careful because we are flesh. Our, our first mindset is always going to be the flesh. Always. Even when I'm walking close to God, my very first thought is going to be a fleshly thought. But sometimes we're so close to God that his thoughts are right there on top of it and we can come out with his thoughts first as far as verbalizing. It's so important because it's how close is he? How close is he with us? How, how close am I to him probably is the better term because he's always right there waiting for us. You know, we may not want him in, you know, it talks about, you know, is God sitting on the throne of our heart and sometimes it's us sitting on that throne. Sometimes we have him next to us, standing next to us. You know, he's saying, hey, I'm supposed to be in that seat that you're in. You go, no, no, I want my seat. You know, sometimes we've got him pushed off in the corner of our heart and, you know, saying, you hide over there until I want you. And he's gentlemanly enough that he's going to say, okay, well, I'll hide until you think you need, think you need me, and then I'll wait until I know that you need, need me. And this is critical. Sometimes God will let us. If we want to push him away, he'll let us get into situations where everything will go wrong. And then when we seek him, he'll, he'll hold off just a little bit longer until we're really ready to make sure that we know that he's supposed to be Lord. And this is the key. When we accept him, he wants to be Lord. There used to be a bumper sticker in the 60s and 70s saying, God is my co-pilot. You know, what a dumb statement. He's supposed to be the pilot. You know, he's not supposed to be the co-pilot. You know, he's not the one that advises us when we need help. He's to be the pilot. And he wants to be Lord. He wants to be master. He wants us to let him be in charge. And this is the critical thing as we look at it. Is he in charge? Is he the Lord and master of my life? Or am I trying to be master of my life with him kind of in the corner for, for an advisor? And that is not where he wants to be, and that's not where he'll let himself be. If we want to push him over there, he'll be quiet. He won't advise. He will let us make bad decisions. He will let us get basically to rock bottom and say, oh, by the way, God, I think I need you over here to take, take over it, you know, for you because I, I've, made, I've made a mistake. But he is not just going to stand by and say, you know, be, be there just when, when we need him type person. He's gonna, he wants to be in charge or he's not, he's not just standing by waiting for us to say, oh, I need you to get over here. He's going to make sure that we want to make him Lord. It's the idea of the kid caught in the, caught in the doing something wrong, and they're sorry not because they're sorry. They're sorry they got caught. You know, a lot of times adults get that way. You know, and you can hear them when you go to jail. And a lot of these guys are sorry, not that they did something wrong. They're sorry they got caught. And there's you know big difference between those two sorrows. And their attorney wasn't good enough. <laughs> you know, my attorney can beat up your attorney. Yeah. That's kind of a negative way to look at it, but it, it, but it, huh? People do say that, though. Oh, yeah. But the key is always, you know, am I ready to listen to God? Is, am I ready to make him Lord and Savior? And he's not going to be a halfway Lord and Savior. He's not going to 
be put on the be put on the throne of the heart and taken back off and put back on. He's saying, no, we're not going to play this game. I am your Lord and Savior, or you can try to run your life your own way. And when we try to run the life our own way, we're in for misery. And he'll be right there because he promised never to leave, but he's going to wait till we're ready to make him Lord and Savior to, to direct us and guide us. He's not going to be a part-time guide. When we really truly want him to be Lord and Savior, he'll be there, ready to go. And he'll get us out of the troublesome places. He'll guide us in, in the right decisions. Even when we've totally made a mess of things, he can guide us out of the mess and work out the mess to be good. And that's our Romans 8.28. All things work together for good for those that are called according to his purpose. He will work things out to good. Even though we've made a huge mess out of things, God can make things good. And it's amazing what he can do with the broken pieces because he's the creator. He can, he can put the pieces back together as if they had never been broken. He can make things out of the broken pieces where we couldn't do. And so we want to be able to look at that. I'm going to look at John 17. When I was in the book of Luke looking at 17 in Luke, I'm going, that means that is not anything about what it's supposed to be. All right, we look at uh, John 17, which is really the Lord's true prayer, you know, when he's praying to the Father for his disciples and for us. These words spoke Jesus, starting in verse 1, and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life unto as many as... As you have given him power over all flesh, and he should give eternal life to as many as he, thou hast given him. Verse 3, And this is eternal life, that, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. And I have glorified you on this earth, and have finished the work which you have gave me. And now, O Father, glorify me with your own self with the glory that I had with you before the world was. I have manifested your name unto the men which you have given me out of this world. They, yours they were, and you gave them to me, and I have kept them, and I have kept the, your word. I'm going to stop there at verse 6. But this is Jesus talking about, this is eternal life, that they may know the Father. You know, not just Jesus, but the Father. And this is where it's so important. Moses was told that no one could see the Father and live. No flesh could see the Father and live. And Jesus says, I want to bring them to you. And in essence, it's still true. Even today, we cannot see the Father. We cannot come before the presence of the Father without... In our flesh, we have to be crucified. We have to, our flesh has to be killed. We have to be alive through the Spirit. And then we get to come to the Father because we are in Christ. We are in the Holy Spirit. We stand before God and he says, here's my perfect children. Here are my perfect children. I have justified them because of the work that Jesus has done to bring eternal life to them. And it is precious. It's precious that when we come before the Father, it is in the Spirit realm. We have spiritual life, Zoe life, spiritual life, eternal life. And we come before him and we come before him in Christ, just as we talked about on Sunday morning. That we are put on Christ. We have his righteousness when we stand before the Father. 
And this is eternal life, to have that standing before him. The standing that is in grace. The standing that is the finished work of Christ. Christ died on the cross, finishing the work of paying, payment for sin, so that we could be in him and stand before the Father complete. Completely perfect when the Father looks at us. That is the preciousness that we have as we stand there. And this is why we cannot lose our salvation, because we did nothing really to earn it. We did nothing. The only part we had was to admit that we're a sinner and accept Christ. And that comes from the working of the Holy Spirit on us. So even that much we didn't even have a claim on. It's just we have responded to God working on our heart and said, Okay, Father, I surrender. I give up. My, I deserve punishment and I need your, I need your gift. But that is as much involvement as we have in, in this gift. And that was to accept it. And then Jesus says, okay, here's all of the riches that you're going to have because of it. I'm going to give you all the riches of heaven. I'm going to give you all the riches of being a son and daughter of, in my family. And you get everything. It is a great thing. And it's not going to be taken away from us because he's, it's paid for already. It would be like buying a gift for somebody that's totally paid for, that you really love, you hand it to them, and then two or three years later you said, well, I don't think you deserve it anymore, I'm taking it away. Number one, nobody, nobody that's in their right mind is going to do that to somebody. You know, and I know what happens, but that's because they're not in their right mind. <laughs> you know, but it happens, but it's not, it, even, in, even in the world's terms, an abnormal play, thing to do. You know, you don't give somebody and then turn around and say, well, I want it back. You know, if you do, everybody looks at you as if you're a nut. You know, you know how, why would you do this? How come you're doing this? You know, because they know it's abnormal. God is not going to do that to us. He's not going to give us something and say, oh, well, you're, I don't think you deserve it. I'm taking it away from us, from you. Because we didn't deserve it when we got it. We did nothing that was good enough for God to say, I really think you deserve this. I, I think I'm giving this because you deserve it. Now, I was a sinner, headed for hell. God couldn't even look at me. My righteousness, all the good things that I did, he looked at and said, they're just a pile of stinky rags. There was nothing in me that deserved eternal life when God gave it to me. There is nothing I can do to undeserve it because I never deserved it in the first place. And so his, his perfect eternal life is given to us freely freely and it's not automatically given to everybody just because Jesus paid for it because people have to recognize they're a sinner and accept the gift otherwise God would just be being basically mean making people spend eternity with him when they didn't want to spend a day with him at all I love spending time with God I love spending time with his word Heaven to me is going to be the most wonderful place because it'll be spending time with the Spirit. And you can think that heaven for those who don't want to spend time with God would actually be a hell anyway. Because they didn't want to spend time with God. They didn't want to be around His, his presence. You know, the last thing he wanted to do was submit. So heaven would not be heaven for somebody who didn't want to be there anyway. Now, hell is not going to be a pleasant place for them. It's not saying that hell is going to be good for them in com comparison, but it, it would not be heaven to them if, even if they were sent to heaven. 
because they would have to spend time with somebody they didn't want to be around or want to be submitted to. That's a good uh, hypothesis. It could be hell, making them stay where it's a place that they don't want to be with. You know? Well, they won't even find out whether it is or not because they won't be there. Because God knows our heart, and God will send them to the place. They and God will send them to the where they wanted to be, and it's not really where they wanted to be. Then they'll find out it's not what they wanted it to be anyway. You know, hell is a place of punishment. It has been. It is a prison for, for Lucifer and his demons, and for all the humans that reject Jesus, they will be sent to that prison. And Satan is not the ruler of hell. You know, you don't. You never want to think that. I've heard Christians say that. You know, Satan. Satan is there trying to get as many people into hell as possible so that he can rule. No, he is a prisoner of hell. He will be a prisoner of hell just like every other being that is sent there. He is not the ruler of hell. There will not be parties in there because he's he's gotten what he wanted. He will he just wants to hurt God as much as he can by taking as many of God's precious souls with with him into punishment. And hell is hell is a punishment for all that are there. <clears throat> not a not a benefit, not a not a not a place where he's ruling. You know, Satan is not God's equal. He is he is a created being. He is not the equal of God. God he he is basically a, you know, pet on a on a leash, saying you can you can only go so far, you can only do so much. God could di- dismiss him with just a, a thought, saying you no longer exist, and God is using him to purify his people. And there's no great power that he has. He's not God's equal. He's not Jesus's equal. He is a created being that does not have power except it's given to him, just like every other created being. All right. There are so many scriptures on eternal life that I could give you, and if you want to write notes and read them down later, I can give them to you. Or So if you want to write these verses down to look up later on, we'll give them to you. Luke 18, 28 through 30. Luke 18, 28 through 30. John 3, 14 through 16. John 4, 35 and 36. John 4, 35 and 36. John 12, verse 25, Galatians 6, 8, Galatians 6, 8, Daniel 12, 2, Daniel 12, 2, Matthew 28, 46, Matthew 28, 46, John 6, 27, John 6, 27, John 10, 28, Romans 2, 7, Romans 2, 7, Romans 6, 22, Romans 6, 22, 1 Timothy 6, 19, 1 Timothy 6.19, Titus 1.2, Titus 1.2, 1 John 2.25, 1 John 2.25, and Jude verse 21. Jude verse 21. Jude has one chapter. So you could say 121, but when you get there, do the only place where there's 21. And this isn't even all the verses on, on, on eternal life. So That's the sheet that he gave us with all the scriptures. It's like two pages. Uh, no, this is extra verses about eternal life. Okay. So... Just, we want to really emphasize eternal life is such a powerful thing for us. It is what, it is what we have. All right, let's close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you that you've given us eternal life and that you love us so much that you, that you died for us, that you, you did all the work. You gave us something we don't deserve. You paid, you paid a debt you didn't owe. We owed a debt that we couldn't pay and that you did it all for us. We just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.